we're, uh, as Steve says, we're doing something a little bit different this morning because we live in, in interesting times. Do we not? Is it just me? <laughs> we live in interesting times and uh, not just interesting for what's happening in the natural, but interesting and more interesting for what's happening in the spiritual and what God is doing and what God is preparing to bring. Uh, if you are somebody who follows uh, prophetic voices, you will have probably f- noticed patterns developing around 2020 and what God is going to be doing this year. There's going to be some incredible things happen. But whenever God plans to do something incredible, the devil does what the devil does. In Revelation 12, it says this. It says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So the devil didn't succeed. Whenever God is about to move, the devil tries to cut it off at the point of delivery because the devil is fearful about what God is doing. The devil operates from a place of fear. It's the same spirit that's pervading the earth right now. Spirit of fear. And the devil is trying to do what the devil always does. He's trying to cut off what God is doing in its infancy. And you see this pattern repeated over and over and over again through scripture. God does something and the devil reacts. Thinking that he's going to cut off God's plan. That God brings about good things out of the bad things the devil tries to do. God brings about his good purposes through it all. Again and again and again it happens. Most obviously it happens around the birth of Jesus. The devil stirs up the heart of Herod to fear the king that's coming instead of rejoicing. And Herod sends out a proclamation that says all children, all male children under the age of two are to be killed. It happens again or it happened before. When Moses was coming on the scene and God was getting ready to deliver his people from one location into the next, from slavery into a promise. Interesting what happens in Exodus. When you read it, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gives this proclamation that all males uh, of the Israelites should be killed. And he tells the Hebrew midwives, we've heard midwives mentioned already this morning, interesting how God does what he does. He says to the midwives, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, don't. But scripture reveals to us that the midwives didn't do what he asked because they feared God. In other words, the midwives, the midwives wouldn't partner with what the authority of the world was saying. They chose instead to partner with what the heavenly authority was saying. And when they did that, God blessed them. A midwife's job is to ensure the safe delivery of what's on its way. I believe God is calling his church to rise up like those midwives and to ensure the safe delivery of what's on its way. This is the bit that really stirs my heart in Exodus 1 where it says, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Because the midwives were obedient, because they did what God was telling them to do and not what the world was telling them to do. God blessed them and gave them their own families. I believe God is saying if the church will rise up like those midwives, if the church is willing to be bold enough to go against what the world is saying 
and align with what heaven is saying, God is going to give you a new family. And it will be children who've been raised in an atmosphere of fear, and we are to teach them what it means to live in an atmosphere of faith. We are to teach them what it means to be in a place of perfect love that casts out all fear. And at any significant moment in history, it's those who grasp the size of the opportunity and not the size of the opposition who shape the way events go. We stand in an incredible moment of opportunity. This may be the last time that we are able to meet together on a Sunday like this for a while. In every problem, there's an opportunity. Or in every opportunity, there's a problem. Who will we be? We must be people of opportunity. I'm reminded of the 12 spies that went out from the Israelites into the land. Ten brought back an unfavorable report. Two brought back a favorable report. Who knows the names of the ten? No one. Who knows the names of the two? Everyone. It's those who grasp the size of the opportunity that set the course of history. There is an opportunity for us as a church that we have not had for generations. There's an opportunity to grasp hold of what God is doing and to rise up and to be the church that he's called us to be. It will look very different to how it has looked. But even amidst the disruption and the chaos and the fear that the devil is trying to sow, God is turning it for his good purpose. I have to believe that we are not able to meet here on Sunday. God will use it for a good purpose. He will give us opportunities to minister to our neighbors, to our communities, to those around us that never before. He will give us that opportunity. We have to be in tune with what he's saying, not what the world is saying. We carry a different spirit. Not one of fear, not one to uh, fall back into slavery, but one of adoption to sonship. One of power and love and a sound mind. Not panicking, sound mind. It's a spirit we carry. We have an opportunity to demonstrate that spirit like never before. We just sung, I will sing of the goodness of God. I want to encourage you as we walk into this moment of opportunity, let's be like those sons of Issachar who understand the signs of the times. See what God is doing. Grasp hold of the opportunity and sing of the goodness of God. Sing it to your neighbor. If you use social media, sing it all over social media. Be those two spies bringing back a favorable report of the land that's approaching, of the place we're going. Let's bring back a favorable report of what God is doing and what will happen in this time when the spirit of fear pervades so strongly. Let us shine a light on that darkness. Let us be that light that shines in the darkness, for the darkness cannot overcome it. Let us let our light so shine before men that they will see our good works, the spirit that we carry, and give glory to our Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. Right, let's talk about Jonah, because he's relevant as well. So we're going to continue the story of Jonah. We're looking at chapter 3 today. I want to give you a fast recap, because I don't want to take too much more time. So let's recap how we got to this point. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. He lived 750 BC. That's 2,770 years ago. He's still relevant today as well. His story is still relevant. He lived at a time when the kingdom of Israel was divided in two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied up until this point in the story mainly to the people of Israel. But now God was calling him to go to the people of Assyria. Interesting. God was uh, opening 
avenues of opportunity for Jonah to walk into the city of his enemies. And you may remember that last week we talked about the Syrians. They weren't a nice people. They did all sorts of nasty things. And not uh, a few years before Jonah went, they had been oppressing the people of Israel. They'd been raiding that kingdom. They'd been killing. They'd been stealing. They'd been destroying. Jonah probably would have had uh, friends, maybe even members of his own family, who'd been affected by what these people were doing. And now God was saying, arise and go to these people. Go to that great city of Nineveh and tell them the message that I have for you. Jonah don't want to go. I wouldn't want to go. Be like saying, get on a plane and go to the leaders of ISIS and tell them that God's about to overthrow you for the evil you've been doing. I don't want that assignment. Jonah didn't want that assignment. So Jonah got on a boat and went in the opposite direction. He headed for a place called Tarshish, which was out in the Mediterranean, instead of going to Nineveh, which is in Syria. So he's heading in directly the opposite way. And we know the story, don't we? This storm erupts, threatens to... Uh, destroy the boat that's carrying Jonah and the sailors. And the sailors begin to panic. They're worrying about uh, which god have they failed to appease? What's happened? Why is this happening? And they're all panicking, and then they find Jonah, who's asleep on the boat below decks, which is an interesting little fact and maybe a whole different sermon in itself. But they find Jonah, and eventually they get the story out of him. Why is this all happening? And he says, well, it's because of me. It's because I haven't done what God called me to do. And so you know, if you want to save yourselves, you better throw me over the side. So the sailors, reluctantly, had to be admitted, throw him over the side. And then it's the part of the story we all know, isn't it? He goes into the sea, and God sends the whale, the fish, to gobble him up, and he's inside of the fish. Three days, three nights. Maybe he's dead, maybe he's alive. We talked about that a little bit last week. Interesting discussion, not for today. But while he's inside of that fish... In chapter 2, he prays this incredibly beautiful pro, uh, poetic prayer. And it's recorded, all through, it's recorded in chapter 2, and it reveals his repentant heart, his heart of repentance towards God. And he ends up saying, what I vowed I'll pay, salvation belongs to you, God. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah's vomited back onto the beach. And that's where we find him today. On the beach, lying with seaweed trapped around his head, covered in God knows what, smelling like the inside of a Grimsby trawler. That's where we find him. Let's pick up the story. Chapter 3, we're going to read it. We're going to read this whole chapter. Chapter 3, I'm reading from the ESV, and those words will come up on the screen. It says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
It's a story of a painter who, um, to make a little bit of extra money, thins down his paints and charges his customers full price. And one day this painter gets a call from the local vicar who says, will you come and paint the outside of my church? And the painter rubs his hands together thinking, I'm going to make a bundle out of this one with my thin down paints. So off he goes and he sets up his things and he puts up a ladder to go up the spire and paint the, paint the church. And as he's painting away there up the ladder, the clouds roll in and the storm kicks up. And out of nowhere, lightning strikes the ladder and throws him to the ground. He's lying on his back, looking up at the clouds rolling over and he thinks he's about to meet his, meet his maker. So in desperation, he cries out, God, what must I do to get a second chance? And then he hears this voice from heaven. Repaint, repaint, and thin no more. Funny story. God's the God of second chances. God is the God of second chances. And there's a detail that we often pass over in the story of Jonah when we tell it to our children, and that's that God sends the message to Jonah again. He doesn't just deliver him and save his life with the fish. He actually commissions him again. He gives him a second chance. He says, go into that city and now do what I've told you to do because God wasn't finished with Jonah. He was determined to use him for the task that he called him for. We might think, if we were God, we wouldn't use Jonah. Why would we use somebody who's already run away from what we've asked them to do once? Why would we use somebody who clearly isn't up for it or doesn't want to do it? And if you or I were deciding who would go to Nineveh after he ran off that first time, we'd probably choose somebody else. We'd probably think about uh, going after somebody who hadn't let us down, looking for somebody who, who um, hadn't hurt us, who hadn't failed to meet up our, to our expectations. But I believe it's the Father's heart to see children restored. And God doesn't give up on people just because they've had a bad day. Thank goodness. And neither should we as the church. And when the sailors threw Jonah off the boat, God sends the fish, not as a judgment on Jonah at all, but as a mercy and as a vehicle to bring him from a place of rebellion into a place of restoration by way of repentance. And so often when someone's hurt us or let us down or doesn't measure up to our expectations, we sacrifice them upon the altar of self-preservation. And then we shy away from including them or anyone else who we fear might let us down from our future because they've hurt us in our past. We exclude people from our future plans because they've let us down in past projects. And God doesn't work like that. A good father doesn't just abandon his children because they failed once. He uses the failure to teach them how to succeed next time. Jesus doesn't abandon Peter when he denied him three times. He meets him for breakfast on a beach. And with a gentle heart of a loving father, he takes him through a process of restoration, which, like a bone when it's mended and healed after being broken, leaves him more resilient for the future that's to come. And you know what? It's not just other people either that we sacrifice on the altar of self-preservation. I think we can do it to ourselves if we're not careful as well. I wonder how many of us are disqualifying ourselves from walking into our destinies because of what we've walked through in our yesterdays. How many of us are saying, well, I've been hurt in relationships in the past. I've been let down by those I love the most. I've been let go from so many jobs. I've applied for so many jobs and never heard anything back. I've been hurt by partners in the past. I've been hurt by bosses. I've been hurt by church leaders. 
I've been hurt so much in the past that I'm going to give up on hoping for those good things in my future. And we disqualify ourselves from our destinies. But I want to tell you this morning, today, that your, dest- your yesterday does not disqualify you from your destiny. In fact, your yesterday is not powerful enough to disqualify you from the destiny he has created you to walk into. Isn't that good news this morning? Because it's our, yes- our yesterdays do not set the context for our tomorrows. As Christians, the third day sets the context for our tomorrows. And every day that we walk out as new creations living in relationship with Jesus. So even if you messed up yesterday, and I mean yesterday, doesn't set the context for today. Doesn't set the context for tomorrow. Doesn't mean that just because you've missed out on something once, that you can't hope for that thing to come along in the future. Yesterday does not determine destiny. The old has gone, the new has come. No matter what we might have gone through in the past, no matter what hurts we might have experienced, you can have a hope for the future, as we're told in Jeremiah 29, 11. Because our future is no longer determined, directed by our history, but by his story, by what he's done. That old life of ashes can be exchanged for a new life of beauty. That old life of mourning can be exchanged for a new life of joy. If you're wondering how to get there this morning, I want to tell you that the number one thing that will leave you living in the shadow of your yesterday instead of the light of your destiny is harboring unforgiveness in your heart. Unforgiveness, living in unforgiveness is like building a cage and locking yourself in and expecting the other person to perish or suffer. When we choose not to forgive, we choose to carry around the weight of our yesterdays. We choose not to let go of those things. We choose to carry that burden. Maybe this morning might be the morning you choose to forgive. You choose to forgive that person who hurt you. And yes, what they did was probably wrong. But choose to forgive anyway. Choose to begin to forgive that person who let you down. Choose to forgive that spouse. Choose to forgive that boss. Choose to forgive that church leader who let you down, who hurt you in the past. Choose to forgive yourself for the things that you've done to yourself, for the mistakes you've made. Choose forgiveness, because by choosing forgiveness today, you can live tomorrow free from the weight of yesterday. Choosing to forgive today allows you to live tomorrow free from the weight of yesterday. It's a difficult process to go through. But it's so often the difficult processes that produce the best results. God's a God of process. We like to rush things. There's a process to go on, but it's a process that yields much fruit. And God is the God of second chances. God is the God of forgiveness. And God is the God of restoration. Thank God. Let's be the church that reflects that. Let's be a church that reflects the God we serve. Jonah, uh, God didn't wash his hands of Jonah just because he messed up the first time. And neither should we. But when I look at the story of Jonah, it raises an interesting question to me. Did God know what Jonah's reaction was going to be the first time he gave him the word? Yeah, he's God. He knows everything. So then, given what Jonah went through, and given the fact that he didn't do what God wanted him to do, why did God choose Jonah to do it? God could have found somebody else who would have done what he wanted him to do. God could have found a willing, obedient servant who would have done what he wanted him to do the first time. But God chose Jonah. Why? Interesting. Let's develop that thought a little bit because it's relevant for us today. 
See, the message that Jonah preached to the city is an interesting one. It's just a short one. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that word overthrown is really significant. It's the Hebrew word horvak. It's interesting because it's the same word that's used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities from the time of Abraham, which God completely destroyed because of the evil within them. And the word overthrown that Jonah spoke to Nineveh in this context does not imply that God is likely to change his mind. So he's spoken this message that says your city is going to be destroyed with no implication that God's going to change his mind, whatever those people do. Interesting. Keep that in mind. And yet, the people, the reaction they have to this message is not only that they believe the message that they've been told, but led by their king, they repent from the wickedness that, they, that they're doing and hope with some level of reasonable expectation that God will relent from what he's just said he'll do, even though that's not the context of the message that Jonah delivered. Why would they do that? Why would they do those things? In fact, why would they even listen to Jonah in the first place? These were Assyrians. They didn't like the Israelites. They didn't like the Jews. They'd been plundering and destroying their country just a few years before. They didn't follow the same God. They worshipped other gods and did all kinds of evil. Why would they even bother to listen to this Jewish prophet who's coming to tell them that their city's going to be destroyed? Why would they pay any attention to what he has to say? And why, even more than that, why would they pay attention to what he has to say and believe what he said and then do something that's kind of contrary to the message that he said with a reasonable expectation that what they do might produce a different result than the message implies? The only explanation I can see, and it's the explanation that all the scholars and the Jewish teachers by tradition have all ended up at, and I think it's what Jesus reveals to us through uh, in Luke 11.30, is that the people had heard Jonah's story, and Jonah's story had been a sign to the people. It was a sign pointing to the fact that the message that Jonah was carrying was one not only to be believed, even if the message he carried didn't explicitly state it, his story testified to the character of the God who was sending the message. And I like to think of Jonah going into the city and um, mingling with the people and going into the marketplaces and the taverns, and people... um, catching a whiff of this man who still smells like a fishmonger's apron and they're like what happened to you mate and then Jonah tells them the story of the fish and everything that happened to him and his rebellion against God and the process of restoration via repentance that he went on see Jonah was the perfect person to carry the message that God had given him Jonah was the perfect person to carry the message of repentance to the people of the city because he'd just been on that exact same journey himself He'd just been on that exact same journey that he was now calling the Ninevites to take. God gave Jonah another chance in the same way he wanted to now give the Ninevites another chance. And there's every indication within the story and within the historical context that had Jonah not gone through what he went through, the people of Nineveh would not have listened to him. In fact, they'd probably just have killed him. But Jonah's journey revealed the character of the God whose message he now proclaimed. And the character of God changed the context of the message from one of judgment without hope of reprieve to one of a hand extended in mercy and compassion and love. See, God knew what Jonah would do the first time. But God also knew what Jonah would accomplish when he went not only with a message but with a story that set the context for the message. 
it'd be easy to look at Jonah's story, wouldn't it, and think that because of his disobedience yesterday, he's disqualified himself from his destiny. But God's able to take our history and graft it into his story. And far from reducing God's glory, actually the struggles and the things that we walk through in life that we'd rather not go through, I think, actually give God greater glory. They actually give God greater glory. Just pop that picture up for me uh, for a second, Stephen. It's a picture we'll be familiar with. We use this illustration all the time. A broken pot restored with gold. Contrast that against a brand new pot. Only one of those pots reveals the the restorative heart of the potter. Only one of those pots reveals a a heart of restoration. God is the master potter and he does not waste anything. The very thing that you went through yesterday that you thought was preventing you walking into your destiny might be the very thing that he's using you to shape you into, the person he called you to become. Or... To put it another way, like Joseph, the prison that you're occupying right now might be the very thing that's preparing you to inhabit the palace of your destiny. And I think we have a bit of an advantage over Jonah as well. Because not only does every single one of us carry a story that speaks of the restorative heart of a father who loves us and wants to see sons and daughters brought back into relationship, but we also carry a message that declares all the work's done. You can have this. It's all on offer. And it's all done. All you have to do is accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Simple as that. That's a much better message than 40 days. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We've got the one up on Jonah. But there's this last piece of the puzzle that has to fall into place, and we see it in Jonah's story as well. Jonah was given a second chance. He was given a message. He was given a story. And now the last piece of the puzzle finally drops into place in verses 3 and 4, where it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, go on a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The last piece of the puzzle is obedience. The last piece of the puzzle is obedience. Jonah did what God had told him to do. And when the sailors, they threw Jonah into the sea, and he sank to the bottom of the ocean, God would have been well within his rights to not send the fish. The fish is just a product of who God is. The fish came about because God is merciful, because God is compassionate, because God loves to give second chances and God has a heart for restoration. It's the only reason the fish is there. didn't have to be there. It had been well, in, well within his rights to let Jonah da- drown. And as you read the discussion that takes place between the sailors and Jonah, this really interesting picture begins to develop. And it, the language they use kind of reveals the picture a little bit. It says um, they have a conversation that goes like this. What shall we do? This is the sailor speaking. What shall we do to you, Jonah, that the sea may quiet down for us, sailors? And then verse 11 in chapter uh, 1, it says, and then uh, as, as they throw him into the sea, they say, oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. It's the image of a sacrifice. The sailors are effectively sacrificing Jonah to the sea in the hope that it will bring deliverance for themselves. But rather than let let Jonah drown, God sends this fish. It reminds me of what it says in 1 Samuel 15, 22. "Does, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, obedience is better than sacrifice. God would have been well in his rights to let Jonah drown as a sacrifice. 
sacrifice. But God's heart is obedience over sacrifice. So he sends the fish as a mercy and a vehicle for restoration by way of repentance from rebellion. God is just waiting for people to be obedient to what he's called them to do, to take hold of that calling that he's given to us. He gave Jonah a second chance to be obedient. And when we walk in obedience with God, we unlock the blessing of obedience of God to change the world. And Jonah gets uh, the, the word from the Lord and he hears it a second time and he goes into the city and God says to him, I'll give you a message to share when you're there. And he walks into this city and he begins to preach this message. Forty days and yet Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know about you, but if I was going to preach a message to a city full of people who didn't like me very much, who probably wanted to kill me, I'd probably want a little more than yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But the reaction of the people tells us everything. I'd be asking God to give me a few more words. But this is the power of, the, of obedience and action. Because when you're the right person, in the right place, at the right time, right in the middle of God's will for your life, eight words might be all it takes to see revival sweep a city. Eight words is all it takes when you're walking in obedience with God. Because ob- obedience unlocks the blessing of God, the anointing of God. God doesn't want sacrifice. He doesn't want you to sacrifice your, fu- your future on the altar of your yesterday. He wants you to take hold of who he's called you to be and walk obediently as you seek to grow into that person and become who he's called you to be. A willing and obedient people, I believe, are a people God can use to bring revival, who God can use uh, in power to turn whole cities, whole generations, whole nations back to him because they're willing to do what he asks them to do. But the thing about obedience is, carry his with it a cost. Just ask Jonah. Jesus said, who sets out to build a tower without first counting out the cost? There's a cost involved in being obedient to God. But if we want to see the kingdom of God advance, we have to be willing to pay the price. One of my um, favorite Christian authors, Christian leaders, Craig Rochelle, says it like this. The difference between where you are and where you want to be is the price you're unwilling to pay. The difference between where you are, think about it, where you are right now, where you want to be in 10 years' time. The difference between those two places is the cost you're unwilling to pay. Where are we right now on the cusp of revival? What do we want to see revival break out? Are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to endure the things that, are, that we need to endure? What offense are we willing to ignore? Because as Kelly reminded me last week, nothing should offend us more than the fact that people don't know Jesus. Nothing should offend us more than that. We're going to worship in a minute off the back of this message and band can come back as we prepare to do that now. I want to leave you with this thought in the time that we find ourselves. Don't disqualify yourself from what God wants you to, do, wants you to walk into based on a place he's called you out of. The Israelites, they wandered in the desert for 40 years and a whole generation disqualified themselves from a promise that was theirs to inhabit because they were so busy looking back at who they were and where they had been instead of looking forward into what God was calling them into. And then when the time came to enter the land, instead of looking at the size of the opportunity, they looked at the size of the opposition 
and fear overruled faith. And the promise passed to the next generation. I think if we want to become the people and the church that God is calling us to become, I believe the blueprint to live the life of victory, to live a life that sees revival sweep cities and nations and continents is spelled out for us in Revelation 12, 11. And it says, They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Gospel message, personal testimony, willingness to prioritize obedience. Message, story, obedience, revival. Message, story, obedience, Revival. Message, story, obedience, revival. Message, story, obedience, revival. Jonah carried a message, he told a story, did it obediently, and revival swept a city of 120,000. There was only one of him. There's hundreds of us. Hundreds of us. And we stand at this very moment in time on the cusp of an extraordinary opportunity. Yes, you may look at it and see the size of the opposition. There may well be giants in the land, but I serve a giant slaying God. We serve a giant slaying God. We stand on the cusp of an incredible opportunity. When a spirit of fear is sweeping this land, it's time for those who carry a different uh, spirit to arise. The time has come, church. Arise and shine, for your time is at hand. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And in the same way, let your light shine. And 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 together, like Gideon's army, as we collectively smash our pots and let our light shine, we scatter the armies of the enemy. We scatter the armies of fear. We scatter the armies of the naysayers and those who say it's all doom and gloom. We scatter it with the light of hope. We scatter it with the light of truth. We scatter it with the light of Jesus. Because we stand on the precipice of an incredible opportunity. We carry a message. We have a story. We are people of obedience. And we will see revival sweep this city, this nation, this land. And we now, together as a body, will stand as one and we are going to sing out truth. We are going to praise the God of all creation and we are going to go from this place on fire for him, ready to take hold of the incredible once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that is on offer for us to get out of this place. God is doing a new thing and you can't tell me that he can't use a virus scare like this to kick his church up the backside and say, get out of here. It's revival time. What are you doing in these walls? Get out into the community and bring revival. Knock on your neighbor's door. Show them the light. Break your jar of clay. It's time to let your light shine. Let's praise his name this morning. Let's lift him up and let's go from this place on fire to see revival burn in Lincoln and beyond.